life can be really complex. And so in order to combat the complexity, we like to create formulas to help us deal with the difficult things in life and the really complicated things in life. Because it's nice to be able to take a set structure in a certain circumstance, take out a few variables, plug in something new, and still have a nice, clean, tidy result. And so obviously we have formulas in things like math and science. We have formulas in business. We even have formulas in churches. We have formulas to help us cook dinner at the end of the day. And we even have formulas in the arts. And one of the formulas in screenwriting in particular that's most common is a formula known as a three-act structure. And in a three-act structure, if you've never heard this term before, you're probably familiar with what this looks like because it's kind of the five-paragraph essay of movie making. And so in a three-act structure, you start with act one, which is the setup. That's when you get to know your characters. That's when you get to know what the plot is going to be like. You start to get the feel of the movie, and it starts to move upwards towards something. Maybe there's a little tension, but things are just kind of starting to build. And then you have a climax at the end of Act 1 that leads into Act 2, and now things can start to get difficult. There's some obstacles that get in the way. Maybe halfway through Act 2 and halfway through the movie, there's a a big conflict, a major conflict or a major twist that takes all the things that you know and understand and turns it on its head a little bit. And now you're heading towards this climax at the end of Act 2 with all of these obstacles and all these disasters taking place. And then you hit the end of Act 2 and everything happens. There's the big explosion or the big conflict or everything comes to a head and Act three begins with this big thing that takes place. And then the rest of act three is the resolve, or as it's known by its proper French movie making term, the denouement, which is a great word to say. It's a great word when you look at it, but even to say it out loud is really pleasant. So say it with me, the denouement. Again, with a, with a French gruff in it. The denouement. This would be a weird time for someone to walk through the door, right? If we're all walking in and there's just a bunch of people yelling French words at each other, it would be strange. But it's a very pleasant word, and it means a very pleasant thing to me because this is my favorite part of the movie. And the denouement is when everything ramps down. And all those loose ends start to tie up. And all the things that happen because of the major conflict or the climax start to come together. And so maybe you start to see what the plot meant all along. Or maybe after the climax, you start to follow the characters as they go their separate ways and see what happens afterwards. Or you see how all the things neatly tie back together. And for me, that's my favorite part. The climax, the tension, all that just makes me a little antsy. And so I love the ending of the movies when everything seems to fall back into its place. Now, if a movie doesn't have that, you hear a lot of times the criticism that that movie doesn't have a third act, that basically there's not a proper ending to it, that things don't come together, that things don't tie themselves up nicely and neatly. And that's where my frustration with the book of Jonah comes in, because Jonah doesn't have a third act. The book of Jonah ends in an incredibly frustrating way. It feels like there should be something more. It feels like there should be a chapter 5 where we see what happens to the city of Nineveh and most importantly where we see what happens to Jonah. We want to see what becomes of Jonah at the end of the story. Does he get his act together? Does he repent? Does he start to understand how good and merciful God is and start to love the Ninevites? Or does he live the rest of his days calloused and bitter and angry? 
But we don't get to see that. In fact, we stop hearing from Jonah about halfway through this last chapter, and we never hear from him again. We don't get the luxury of seeing what happens to Jonah because that isn't the point. See, when we look at the book of Jonah, literally look at it, in my Bible, his name is in really big letters at the top. And it's on the page next to it. And his name is at the beginning of almost every heading. And his name pops up over and over inside the book. And so it can be really easy to think that Jonah is the centerpiece of this book. That this is a story about Jonah and about what happens to Jonah. And so because of that, we want to see what happens to Jonah. But this isn't a book about Jonah. This isn't a book about Nineveh. This is a book about God. See, we can sometimes reduce the Bible, reduce Scripture down to a fable. That these are just stories that are being told so that we can have some kind of moral at the end. That these stories, especially stories like Jonah's, are here so that we can look at Jonah and simply learn from who Jonah is. And Jonah's story is teaching us a very important life lesson. Because sometimes we have a tendency to think that the Bible is here just to teach us how to live and who we're supposed to be. And while there's certainly elements of Scripture that teach us lessons and teaches us how to live and how to function in this world and things that we should do and things that we shouldn't do, the ultimate purpose of Scripture is not to give us instructions on how to live, but to reveal to us the character and the nature and the plan of God. This book is not a story about Jonah's folly or Nineveh's redemption just to teach us a moral lesson, but it's the divine revelation of the mercy and the compassion of the God who loves both Jonah and Nineveh. God uses the people of the story to reveal to us who he is and what he's doing. I love the quote in the New American Commentary by a man named Eulal. And this is what he says. The book of Jonah has no conclusion, and the final question of the book has no answer except from the one who realizes the fullness of the mercy of God. And so today, after a long time, we're going to end the book of Jonah, and we're going to get a glimpse into the heart of God. And through that, we're going to be reminded of God's love and his mercy for us and hopefully understand how his love and his mercy should drive us to love and to serve the others, the Ninevites in our own lives, as we worship our compassionate creator and our compassionate father. And so let's look at the ending of the book of Jonah here, starting in verse 6 of chapter 4. It says, Now the Lord appointed a plant. And made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it's better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. 
And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Father God, we do thank you for your word. And we thank you that your word isn't about us, that it's not about Jonah, but that it's about you. That you love us enough to reveal yourself to us, to show us who you are, but also show us how you love us and your mercy and your compassion and how that affects who we are to the depths and the core of our person. And so God, as we look at the finality of the story of Jonah and his rebellion and your mercy for him and your mercy for the people of Nineveh. God, remind us of your mercy and your compassion for us. And then God, through that, as we look not to the example of Jonah or the Ninevites, but most importantly to the example of you and who you are, God, help us to have that same kind of compassion, that same kind of love, and that same kind of mercy for the people around us. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. We put a lot of importance on famous last words, which seems a little bit unfair. Because if you live a whole life and you do a lot of things over the course of your life for 50, 60, 70, 80, even 90 years, your legacy shouldn't be reduced down to the last few words you say. It's kind of like how in the, in the NFL, before the draft, the NFL draft happened just a little while ago. And so you have all this buzz around the draft, and you have these college guys that have been playing football for three, four, maybe even five years, and so there's all this tape, all this film, you know what kind of player they are, but then they go to the NFL Combine, and they run a 40, or they they do a long jump, or they do a high jump, and all of a sudden they have all these measurables, and these scouts start to take all the stuff that these guys have done for their entire career, and put it to the side, and just judge these guys on what happens in this one day, whether it's good or bad. And it doesn't seem fair, and it doesn't seem right. But we do that, because these things have merit, and these things have weight. And so famous last words tend to be really important to us. We want to know what people say right before they breathe their last, or what the last words are that we hear someone utter. And these are Jonah's. After his little plant dies, he says, It's better for me to die than to live. And then God asks him a question. He gives him a chance to walk this back. He says, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah says, yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. Last words we hear from Jonah. There's nothing more. There's nothing else. The last thing that Jonah says is that because of the death of his plant, he is so angry that he would rather die than live. This is his legacy. This is the last thing that Jonah leaves us, that he's so angry he could die. He's so angry because God decided to show mercy and compassion to a city of over 100,000 people that made him so angry that he could die. He's so angry because God gave him this plant and he finally had some comfort and some shade from the sun and then the plant died. And because of the death of this plant, this silly plant, Jonah is so angry that he could die. Now, when we look at Old Testament passages, especially in the prophets, it's easy to make the prophet the hero. When you encounter a book like Daniel, Daniel looks like a hero, right? 
He's taken out of his homeland, brought into exile, into this foreign land, and he constantly, time after time after time, takes these incredible stands of faith. Even to the point where when the king makes this edict that you couldn't worship anyone else or pray to anyone else but the king himself, Daniel, time after time, would go to his window three times a day in view of anybody who passed by, and he would pray to God. Even when he was threatened with being thrown in a den full of lions, Daniel was faithful. And that feels like a hero. Isaiah. Isaiah understood his weaknesses. He understood, as he said, that he was a man with unclean lips and an unclean heart. He was from a people of unclean lips. And he wasn't fit for anything that God had called him to do. And yet still, when God issued this call and said, Who am I going to send and who will go for us? Isaiah stood up and he said, Here I am. Send me. He was willing to step up and do whatever God called him to do. And Isaiah feels like a hero. Hosea, that guy, used his life to show the people of Israel the love and the mercy and compassion of God. Hosea marries a prostitute who cheats on him over and over and over again and breaks his heart over and over again, and yet he welcomes her back and loves her and cares for her to show the people of Israel around him how much God loves them even when they run out to other gods, and he welcomes them back. Hosea looks like a hero. Jonah does not look like a hero. Jonah doesn't let us do that. Jonah doesn't let us reduce his story to a hero's tale that just shows us some kind of good example. But Jonah forces us to look elsewhere for the hero of the story because it certainly isn't him. Jonah shows us the worst of the best of us. Because remember, Jonah is a prophet. This is a really important job, and not just anybody would have the calling to be a prophet. And so Jonah clearly had something about him that God was using him in this incredible and awesome way. And so Jonah would have been looked at and revered as a hero, as a figure of faith, as a figure of stature, as a religious leader during his time. And yet we see all of his weaknesses and all of his brokenness. And Jonah reminds us that even the best of us don't have what it takes to be the hero of our own story. And Jonah's obvious weaknesses and failures remind us of something that's true of Daniel and it's true of Isaiah and it's true of Hosea, that even though they seem to do things the right way, they still weren't the hero of the story because we're told in the New Testament that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that doesn't mean just Jonah. That means Daniel and Hosea and Isaiah and every person who's come before them. The hero of the story is not the one that the book is named after. And Jonah reminds us of that so clearly. And Jonah reminds us that we aren't the hero of our own stories either. That we can't save ourselves from what ails us. And that we need someone to step in with something better and offer something on our behalf. We need a hero. And so Jonah's last words are these just cries of desperation and anger and showing us and reminding us again how flawed and how broken he is. And in the middle of Jonah, with all of his anger, as he speaks, then the real center of the story, the real hero of this story starts to speak. Jonah says, I'm so angry. It would be better for me to die than to live. And then God speaks to him. In verse 9, God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? 
And I love this because it shows us something about the character of God. And all through the book of Jonah, we've seen how God's communication reveals part of who he is. We've seen that he's a God who speaks, that he comes and he speaks to his people and he calls us to do things, and that he has this personal communication with his children. But not only does God speak to us, but he also listens. And he listens to our cries, even when it seems like he shouldn't, God is actively listening to us. But now we even have another depth of the way that God communicates because we see that God asks questions. That he doesn't just speak, that he doesn't just listen, but God asks questions of us and allows us the room to respond. And what's so amazing about this question is we've already seen that God is all-knowing, he's all-powerful, he's all-present. God knows the answer to this question. When God comes to Jonah, he says, do you do well to be angry? He knows what Jonah's going to say. And he knows what Jonah should say. But it shows us this incredible kindness that God has for us. That even in the midst of our rebellion and our weakness, he still allows us to be a part of the process. And he still allows us to take some responsibility in our learning and in our growth. It sounds a lot like in Genesis chapter 3. After Adam and Eve's sin in the garden. And they hear God and they run away and they hide and they try to cover themselves up. And God comes out and he says, where are you? But he knows. And they say, well, we were hiding because we we were naked and we were afraid and we didn't want you to see us. And he says, well, who told you that you were naked? And allows them to start to speak and to hear these things coming out of their own mouth. And it shows us part of the nature of God as as this holy and, and amazing father. Because when you have children, you ask them a lot of questions that you know the answer to. When we were working with Josie early on about learning her colors, we would ask her, Josie, what's the color of that chair? And it wasn't because we temporarily lost our memory. It wasn't because I was really concerned about the color of the chair and I wasn't sure what it was and I desperately needed the advice of a one and a half, two-year-old. I was pretty confident that I knew that the chair was red. But what we would do is we would ask Josie, what's the color of the chair? And so she would have to think it about it and process it and come to that conclusion on our own. And it's a way to teach and a way to help a child grow. And we see God doing that for Jonah here in this passage of Scripture. Jonah asked, or excuse me, God asked this question to set the stage to reveal something really important to Jonah. He's trying to help Jonah see how flawed his thinking is and how ridiculous his priorities are. But even more importantly than that, through this line of questioning, God is setting Jonah up to learn something about who God is. Because he says, you do well to be angry. And Jonah says, yeah, absolutely, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And then God said, you pity the plant for which you didn't labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. He basically comes to Jonah and he says, buddy, do you really need to be this angry about the plant? And Jonah says, yeah, I do. I, I hate everything because my plant is dead. And God says, Listen, hear me out, buddy. You didn't do anything for this plant. 
This isn't a plant that you labored for. You didn't break the ground and plant the seed. You weren't working the ground around it to help it grow. You weren't watering the plant. You didn't fertilize the plant. You didn't see this plant grow up from a little sapling into a mighty tree. This doesn't have any sort of connection to your past or your history. This isn't the plant that your mom had on the shelf when you were a kid and you looked at it when you were sad. This is a plant that came up one morning and disappeared one night, and yet you act like it's such a big deal that your entire world is falling apart. How ridiculous is that? But then he uses verse 10 to help Jonah to see what's going on as God reveals his plan. He says, you have this pity for the plant that you didn't labor and you didn't make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And then he says, and should I not pity Nineveh? the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who don't know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. See, verse 10 adds a layer of depth to verse 11. Because God says, you didn't work for that plant. You didn't do anything for that plant. That plant had no attachment to you at all. You had no investment in that plant. But then by way of comparison, he says, now should I not pity Nineveh? And just by giving us verse 10, God gives us this extra layer where he reminds us that God did labor for Nineveh. That God is the creator of the heavens and the earth is the one who gave life to that great city. That that city couldn't exist without the governing and the sustaining and the compassionate heart of God. That every single person inside of Nineveh, those 120,000 people that God is talking about, all were created by God in the image of God. Every one of those people, the same thing was true for them as it was for the psalmist who said that God knit him together in his mother's womb. The same thing was true about every single person inside of the city of Nineveh. And so God says, listen, you had this plant that meant nothing to you and you had no affection for it or no investment in it. And now how could you possibly not expect me to have pity for this city full of people that I created in my image for my glory, the city that exists because I am the creator and the founder of everything that has ever existed. We're reminded in this passage of scripture that God's mercy for Nineveh isn't arbitrary. It's not charity for some kind of far off people, but it's his compassion for his creation, for people that he created in his image. This is a reminder to us that God's mercy and God's compassion and God's love is more personal and more intimate and far deeper than we could ever imagine or ever comprehend. Because as creator, he is intimately invested in his creation. And as creator, he is intimately invested in those Ninevites who cried out for mercy. You see, Jonah's compassion only stretched as far as his comfort. Jonah mourned the plant because the plant did something for him. And that's as far as his love and his mercy could possibly reach. Jonah's compassion was selfish and it was shallow. But God reached out to a people that did not know him. And God reached out to a people that did not love him because he knew them and because he loved them. Because they were the work of his hands, the creation of his heart. 
But even beyond that, he says, should I not pity this city? Not only that he had this deep investment in, but he said in this city where there are 120,000 persons who don't know their right hand from their left. And this is basically just a way of God saying that this is a city full of people who don't know what they're doing. You know, I have pity on you, Jonah, and you know what you're doing. You know who you are. You know who I am. And yet you wanted me to have mercy on you. And yet you want me to be just destructive to this city full of people who don't know me. And yes, they're caught up in sin. And yes, their evil had come up before God, but they didn't know what they were doing. And they were lost in their sin. And they were lost in their disconnection from God. And so he's just showing Jonah and reminding Jonah that he is a God who is compassionate on the weak and who shows mercy on the broken. And just like everything in the book of Jonah, it points us up towards Christ, who hundreds of years later would be stretched out on a cross and look over the people who put him there, and he would cry out to God, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. It shows us the heart of God. Like when Jesus looked over the people as he he came to minister and to teach and he saw them like people who were like sheep without a shepherd, who were scattered, not knowing where they were going. Or Jesus, when he looked over the city of Jerusalem and he says, Jerusalem, how long have I wanted to wrap you underneath my wings and take you in and shelter you? This is the heart of God who loves and cares for his creation, even when they're at their weakest. But even beyond that, He says, should I not pity Nineveh with a great city with more than 120,000 persons who do not know their left hand from their right and also much cattle? This is a weird ending for a book. It ends with the word cattle. And again, that stresses me out a little bit because that just feels like there should be something else. But it reminds us of the depth of God's mercy and compassion because it's not just about the people there, but God is even concerned with the animals. And again, it points us towards something better when we see in Revelation chapter 20 and 21 when Jesus comes again to make all things right and all things new, that not only the people who have their salvation in Christ get this restoration, but creation itself is restored and all of the weight of sin and all of the damage that sin has caused, not just in humanity, but on the earth itself will be taken away and removed because God is a creator that cares about his creation. And even Paul in Romans 8 says that the earth itself is groaning, longing for Christ to come and make everything right, longing for Jesus to take away the sting of the curse. And this subtle passage here, this ending that seems so out of place, just reminds us of the depth of God's love and mercy, that it not only extends out of Israel to a foreign land, but not only to the people there, but also to the animals that are living among them. Jonah's parting words are filled with anger and with hate. But the last words we see as God has the last word in the book. God's words are steeped in love and compassion and affection and kindness and even sympathy. All through the book of Jonah, we've seen the bigness of God. We've seen the magnitude and the size of God, that God is creator and that as creator, God is sovereign and sustains everything and moves everything inside of his plan and inside of his will. We've seen that God is so big that he can call a storm when he wants it and calm it just as easily. 
that he can call a giant fish to come and to do his work and send a tiny worm to go and accomplish his missions, that he's so big that even as a prophet is trying to run away and get out of his presence and rebel against him, God works every single circumstance to put Jonah in exactly the right place at exactly the right time to accomplish his good and his glory and to see people worshiping God. That's how big and how sovereign and how awesome God is. And yet on the same hand, in the same book, we also see the intimacy of God as Father. That yes, he's sovereign creator and he works all things to to his will and to his glory and that he holds all things in the palm of his hand and that he's big and he can orchestrate all these things. But God also meets with Jonah intimately and speaks with him kindly and asks him questions. That God also loves Nineveh as his children, as his creation so much that he has pity on them, that he has mercy on them. And we see his kindness and his grace and his mercy. And we see God revealed as Father. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 7, Jesus talks about God as Father. He says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find it. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and one who seeks finds, and to one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Jesus reminds us that God is a good father on a level that we can't possibly fathom. And he says if an earthly father, if even a bad father knows the basics of how to take care of a child to the point where if a child asks for bread, you're not going to give him a stone or asks for fish, you're not going to give him a snake. If we can understand those concepts of how to love and give affection to our own children, how much more can God who is perfect and holy and strong and mighty, how can he much more know how to care for us as his children? How much more deep is his love and his compassion for his children than ours could ever be for our own. God's story in the book of Jonah is a story of mercy, where he shows mercy for sailors and for peasants and for kings and even for rebellious prophets. He shows compassion from the greatest to the least, even to cattle, to 120,000 people who don't know their right hand from their left, and even for an angry, callous, prejudiced man who had all the answers except the ones who mattered. God's story in the book of Jonah reminds us that he is a sovereign God who is a creator of all things great and small and in control over all things great and small, but he is also merciful to the mighty and to the weak. This is the God of the book of Jonah, the God that we love, the God that we serve, the God who sustains his people now and forevermore as a good father who offered mercy once and for all through the work of his only begotten son in Christ. The God who has compassion and mercy on Jonah and on Nineveh also has compassion and mercy for us. The God who is a creator and sustainer of Nineveh and of Jonah is the creator and sustainer of each and every one of us. And as God reveals himself to be a compassionate father of Jonah and of Nineveh, we're also reminded that God is our compassionate father for each and every one of us. And so the whole book of Jonah is about God. 
It's about his character. It's about his mercy. And so more than seeing Jonah's failures, we're supposed to see God's triumph. More than even recognizing Nineveh's redemption and Nineveh's repentance, we're supposed to see God's kindness and God's mercy. But of course, when we encounter these things, when we encounter the nature and the character of God, we have to know how we respond. Because we can't see God for who he is and come away unchanged. And so now that we're at the finality of this book, how do we respond to the picture of God in the book of Jonah? I think first and foremost, we repent. Repentance is a really crucial theme inside the book of Jonah, that when people encounter the power and the majesty of God, repentance follows. We see Jonah after his his incident with being thrown overboard and being eaten by the fish. Jonah's posture is a posture of repentance where he turns away from his rebellion and he starts heading towards Nineveh. In the same way with the city of Nineveh, when Jonah starts to preach this message, we saw that they believed God's word, that they believed that God was going to do what he said he was going to do. And so the king comes out and he says, listen, we need to fast and we need to pray and we need to turn away from our evil ways and worship God and pray to God with earnestness in hopes that he'll relent from the disaster that he was going to bring us. And so the people of Nineveh not only confessed their sin, but they turned away. And that's what repentance is designed to look like in our lives. But Jonah reminds us, as we see elsewhere in Scripture, that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And so as we see the truth in this book, that as Jonah says, that God is a merciful God and a gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster, When we see God as he is, as that kind of God, his mercy and his compassion and his grace should move our hearts to a place of repentance where we realize the brokenness and the weakness of our sin and the goodness of God and we turn away from the things that don't matter and pursue the one that does. And we've been talking a lot about the gospel in the book of Jonah and this reminder that God saves those who cry out for mercy and that his mercy and compassion reaches to the depths of our sin and our brokenness. And so if you're here and you've never trusted in Christ for salvation, then then we see that happen in the book of Jonah. We see what that looks like, that God is a good father, desires that none should perish, and offers us the opportunity through Christ to become his children. And the Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him won't perish but will have everlasting life. And that our response to the good news of Christ, to this good news of God's grace and mercy is to believe but also to repent. To not simply ask for forgiveness but to ask for this passion to turn away from our sins. And so if you've never trusted in Christ before, then I want to encourage you after the service to talk with me or Pastor Adam or Pastor David about what it means to trust in Christ and what it looks like to go through the waters of baptism and what repentance really means. But that's not where repentance ends. Because repentance is a daily process in the life of the people of God. Where we're called that if you're a follower of Christ, if you've trusted in Jesus for salvation, that day after day, our calling is to wake up and take up our cross and follow after Jesus. To day after day, to remember God's kindness and his mercy and each and every moment of our lives to pursue that over the things that pull us away from God. 
to pursue his righteousness over our sinfulness, to pursue his mercy over the things that are trying to pull us back into bondage, and to daily live a life of repentance. We also learn. When we look at the book of Jonah, one of our responses is to learn from the prophet. We do see an example in Jonah of what we should not be. We do see an example in Jonah of how we should not act as God's children. But we also learn from the way that Jonah prays. We've seen Jonah pray prayers of thanksgiving in really difficult circumstances. We've seen Jonah pray even in the midst of his anger. And it reminds us as we see Jonah's prayer life that we have this unbelievable access into the presence of God where we can come boldly and offer our prayers before God. And so we can learn a lot from Jonah and from his story. We can learn a lot from the pagans in the story. We don't just learn from the prophet, but from the pagan sailors who abandoned their other gods and worshipped God when they saw his power and his might. To the people of Nineveh who, when they were confronted with their sins, were overwhelmed with grief and, and dedicated their lives to repentance. But most importantly, when we come to the book of Jonah, we learn about the God that they all worshipped. And so this story should drive our hearts to have a passionate understanding of who God is and who God really is. Because like we've seen in the book of Jonah, sometimes God is not the God we want him to be, but he's always the God that we need him to be. And so instead of creating a picture of a God that we want, we need to go to Scripture and be students of Scripture to study and understand who God really is. And to know him deeply and to know him intimately in every way that we possibly can. So we repent and we learn and then we love. And as we learn who God is and who God really is, we begin to love him for who he really is. To love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength because this is the God that we worship and this is the God that we serve and this is a God who is worthy of our love. A God who is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. That is a God who deserves our love and deserves our affection and so we should live lives of love to God. But as we do that, as we learn who God is, and as we learn to love God for who he is, then as we learn to love God, we learn to love our neighbors. Because Jesus said the two greatest commandments are that we love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second one is like it, that we love our neighbors as ourselves. Both James and John tell us that we can't claim to love God if we hate our brothers and sisters. That we can't love God and not love those around us. And so as we learn to love God more, we should learn to love our neighbors more. And as Jesus told us in the parable of the Good Samaritan, our neighbors are not always the people we want them to be. Sometimes our neighbors are actually Ninevites. Sometimes it's the people in our lives that we hate. It's the people in our lives that we have prejudices against. Sometimes it's the people in our lives that we don't want to have anything to do with. The people that we consider the others in our lives, they're our neighbors. And we still have the responsibility to love them as Christ loves us and to love them as God loves the Ninevites. And most importantly, to love them as God has loved us with this love and merciful compassion that we can't understand and we can't grasp, but he gives us freely. And so we have to love the others in our lives, to love our neighbors as ourselves as we love God for who he is and receive the love that he has for us. And then finally, in our ultimate response to the book of Jonah, 
is that we worship. The story of Jonah reminds us that God is the center point of every story. God is the center point of Jonah's story. He's the center point of yours, and he's the center point of mine. That God is the author and the foundation of everything that exists. God is the center and the foremost thing in existence, the foremost person in existence. And so our lives need to be shaped around that truth, to be people who worship. Not just people who go to worship, not just people who come to church on Sundays and sing some songs, but that every day, Monday through Sunday, that every moment of our lives would be an opportunity to worship and glorify the God who is, the God of Jonah, the God who is the center of our story, who loves us and has compassion and mercy on us. Everything that we do, as the New Testament says, whether we're eating or drinking, all things that we do should be to give glory and honor and praise to God. And so we repent and we learn and we love, but most importantly, we become people of worship as we're reminded that the God of Jonah is our God as well and he is good and he never wavers and he never changes and he's worthy of all honor and glory and praise. Let's pray.